Welcome to the Knowledge Entrepreneurs Show, where we celebrate the innovators driving change in the education industry. At Edison OS, we've worked with over 500 knowledge entrepreneurs to turn their edtech ideas into profitable businesses. In today's episode of the Knowledge Entrepreneur Show, we have Nadia Bennett, a formal school leader and also the founder of When Brown Girls Lead, WBGL Consulting, an education consulting firm that leads the way for schools to become anti-racist learning environments through culturally relevant leadership development and mentorship. Before becoming a thought leader in education-related diversity, equity, and inclusion, Nadia's time as a school leader was truly noteworthy. Serving as a principal in North Philadelphia, one of the most underserved areas in the country, Nadia recognized that there was important work to be done. This culminated in a career of over 15 years under Nadia's leadership as a principal and executive director in which ELA test scores doubled, student attendance increased, and teacher retention rates spiked, earning her a rare commendation from the New Jersey Department of Education. As a proud black female entrepreneur, she currently leads her team at When Brown Girls Lead to make sure all students are receiving the equitable education they deserve. Her passion for championing change was strengthened during her time at Dillard and Howard Universities, where she received a bachelor's degree and master's in education administration and policy. In addition to supporting anti-racist environments in education through her current work, she's also pursuing a doctorate degree. When she's not helping make impactful change across the country, Nadia keeps her mind primed by enjoying time with friends, reading and traveling internationally. She's also been known to binge watch a show or two. Hi, Nadia. Good morning. Welcome to the Knowledge Entrepreneur Show. Thank you so much for taking your time out to be a part of the show here with me today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure, Nadia. Nadia, uh, before we get into the actual work that you do today, can you walk us through your journey up until the point, you know, when you became involved with education and, you know, what were the factors that led you to that path? That is a great question. So I have always loved school and education. I've always loved academia, um, always been a great student. And at a very young age, I found safety and belonging in school, uh, particularly coming from my teachers. Um, So that was just a space where where I felt like I belonged. And so when I got to time to go to college, I always knew somewhere within me that I wanted to work in education. Um, But then I come from humble beginnings, and there's this myth that I now realize is not true, Um, but it's that, you know, well, teachers don't make enough money, you know, et cetera. Now, do I think that we should pay teachers more? Yes. Um, But teachers also make a pretty good living, right? Um, And so because I come from humble beginnings, I kind of said, well, I can't go to college and spend all this money, et cetera, and go into a profession where I won't make enough money. So I ended up majoring in business. Um, but just as life would have it, God, the universe, whatever your belief in higher being is, I found myself right back working with children. Um, so I'm out of undergrad. I have a, a, a regular job, <laughs> really. Um, but I was like volunteering for with the youth and for young kids. And it just brought me so much joy and, and passion. Now, at that time in my life, though, the joy that I, the fulfillment that I got for that, from that wasn't enough to propel me into education. Um, what had actually happened is that I had a, a first cousin of mine. He was a, a um, he's a male. I am a black woman, identify as a black woman. He's also a black, he was a black man. 
And we grew up pretty close. We grew up pretty close, went to the same high school, things like that. And he got involved with uh, drug use. And he was not an addict. However, he tried uh, a drug that triggered something in his heart. Basically, he bought bad drugs unknowingly. Um, He's a very, very young man. um, And he ended up having open heart surgery at the age of about 25 or 26 years old. And that lasted, um, the new heart lasted for about a year, but then he ended up passing away shortly after that. Um, And that was after having another very close relative of mine um, get sentenced to many years in jail, um, just maybe five or six, no, it was more than that. It was probably like eight years before that. Uh, another very close male relative of mine has been sentenced to jail. And keeping in mind, these are close family members that I grew up with. These were, you know, this is my family. This is my blood. Um, and I was watching the way that their lives were turning out. And at that time, I saw the biggest concern around the males in my family. And I was at my cousin's funeral and something hit me. And I said, I have to do more. Because I knew that by I had finished undergrad at that time, I knew that I had changed the course of my life by going to undergrad. And I knew that I didn't experience the same threats anymore that they had experienced because I had that degree, because I was choosing to surround myself with different people. And I was so distraught and upset um, at his funeral that I said, I have to do more. And the next year, I was enrolled at Howard University to get my master's in education, administration, and policy. I know that you're filming from a different country, but Howard is a very well-known historically black college here. And so I just, I went for the top and I got into that program and I never, never looked back. So that's what, that's, that was the trigger that got me to, to aggressively follow my passion because I wanted to literally, I remember, even though my perspective now has evolved, At that time, I was in my mid-20s, and I said, I'm doing this because I want to keep as many Black men out of jail and out of the grave as possible. And that was was where my mind was at that time. So that that was the thing. Got it, Nadia. First of all, I'm sorry about, uh, you know, the the things that you've had to kind of experience. Um, And... I've got, a, you know, a lot of questions, but, you know, obviously uh, this, I'm going to stick to certain things on this uh, platform and maybe, you know, some other time, if, uh, you know, if you'd want to educate the audience, decide about certain questions that I had, we can explore. Uh, but, uh, yeah, sure. uh, you know, coming back to, you know, you said the way your thought process changed after these experiences, but the things that you underwent, you know, are a result of so many complex things, right? And, uh, you know, there are so many avenues uh, from which you can probably impact these things, you know, into a positive outcome. Um, So how exactly did you think that probably education is that uh, route to take for this? And, uh, yeah, your thought process behind taking this route, this this, this route, yeah. Yeah, that's that's a great question. Because it gives me an opportunity to separate my life's calling 
versus the vehicle with which I use to achieve that. So I am called to be a, how can I say this? Um, a person that shows the path to higher levels of freedom for people that look like me, right? Education is a way to achieve a higher level of freedom. It's not the only way, it's not the, and it's certainly not the only way that one should take, but it certainly can give one more opportunities and reach high. And I'm talking about mental freedom, financial freedom, social freedom, spiritual freedom, all of it. The more you educate yourself, the better. So education is the vehicle by which I do that. Right. And it is. So that's what uh, made me choose that, because I knew that education was a way out for me. Right. I, I wouldn't say in my 20s, I certainly didn't have a, a whole lot of I wasn't like <laughs> financially astute in, in, or uh, capable or, you know, in any way. However, I knew that I had more opportunities for better jobs, um, for a better life because I had that degree. And so, again, it brought me to a higher level of freedom. And so that's why education is the thing that I was pulled to. And I'm just and even going back to even my childhood, I just always loved school. I think that that one's just not even deep for me. Like school is, school can be fun. I love to read. I love learning new things. I'm still that way in, 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 you know, in, my, in my big old age. I still, I still love to learn and read and things like that. So yeah, that was, that, that's what I would say. Great. And uh, this, this you said, um, you, you did your undergrad after these experiences or uh, before these experiences? Undergrad was before those experiences. Before those experiences. So, right. So, well, let me, let me separate it. The, the family member that went, that was, uh, that went to prison, that was right before undergrad, like the summer before I started undergrad, that happened. And then after I finished undergrad, the cousin that I lost due to drug use, that was after undergrad. Got it. But you were clear about what you wanted to do when you enrolled yourself into the undergrad program. Uh, no, when I enrolled myself in my master's program, I was clear. In undergrad, it goes back to what I was saying regarding people telling me that teachers don't make enough money. And so I chose to major in business instead. And But when I got time for me to go to my master's, that's when I said, okay, I'm majoring in education because I, I want to help people to reach higher levels of freedom. Got it. Having, you yeah. know, having majored in business in your undergrad and having to, you know, shift uh, parts in your master's, how easy or difficult was that? Or did it play uh, into being an advantage later? It played into being an advantage when I got to leadership. It was not an advantage when I was a teacher. Right. right. So when I was, yeah, I think, uh, not I think, I missed <clears throat> in undergrad, I missed a lot of content around how the brain learns, how to teach teaching strategies. I didn't know those right. things going into my first years of teaching. I had to learn those things the hard right. way, which is fine. It was a part of my journey. Um, and but when I but when I got to leadership, having a undergrad degree in business was definitely helpful. And when I say helpful, what I mean things such as uh, in business school or in undergrad, they teach you how to communicate. They teach you leadership skills. Um, you know, different things like that that may not necessarily have been taught in undergrad and education. So if you had a chance to go back and change, you wouldn't change a thing about what happened in undergrad and master's? Oh, my God. 
I wouldn't change a single thing about it. Um, because that, that was my path. It was the path that I needed. And so many things happened along that path that if I changed something, I don't know where I would end up, (laughs) you know? So some, some people even hate, uh, they think this is as useless a question can you get asking somebody if you'd go back and change because it's so unreal and hypothetical, right? But then I, uh, just ask that question just to understand if, you know, uh, just to validate that a lot of times it gets validated that, you know, things happen uh, in a way that is needed for that particular person. So, you know, trusting the process yes. and trusting one's journey is kind of part of the question. So, and you've again validated it is how I, you know, look at it. And uh, for people who are yeah. wondering what they're doing in their lives, these things kind of goes and reinforces <laughs> that, you know, they are on their journey. But, you know, in some path, which will kind of open up into clear ones as they go. So that's the reason I asked you that. Um, yeah, no problem. Now, you know, uh, you you decide to, you know, kind of change your thing into education and stuff like that. So uh, how exactly did you intend to do that? Because it's in a, in a high level, it's easier said than done, right? Uh, when you actually yeah. get into it, was it that easy? Was it straightforward? What are the challenges you faced? Because even if you want to do good, people should be ready to receive the goodness that is also there. So how was that journey? Well, I would say that nothing about being in leadership has been easy. Right. Um, school leadership is a, an incredibly complex, um, uh, mentally and emotionally taxing job. Um, it's, something that I believe firmly that one should really be called. You should have a higher um, calling on your life to be able to serve in this capacity. It's not just a job that you can have. So that, that's, that's, the, that's one thing. Um, the transition for me, it was only difficult from the technical aspects because I had to, uh, take alternative routes to get certain certifications because I didn't have that undergrad right. degree in business. I mean, uh, education. So those things to, to meet the state requirements, that part was, you know, had some challenges, but because my heart has always so much been for the work and been for children, it wasn't easy, but the difficulties was, it was almost, I guess it was a difficult road that I, that I willingly walked because I knew this is what I needed to be walking. So if I would, if anything that I would say to my younger self, even thinking about your prior question around, like if I would change anything, the only thing I would say to my younger self is follow your heart and your passion from the beginning. And don't be afraid to do that. Um, because of what society says and, you know, what people believe is going to happen. Just follow what you feel that you're being called to and the, the, the road kind of paves itself. Right. Got it. Yeah. And, you know, when you set out to do what you wanted, uh, there's one, you know, where people think you have an audience to directly address and, you know, make an impact, you know, through the students themselves. Mm-hmm. And then there is there is a lot of work that goes in, you know, behind the scenes, like, you know, fundamentally changing policies and systems and rules. 
yes. you know, and I, I know that you said you've been in the capacity of a teacher for a while and then you moved into leadership. So what's the kind of percentage or, you know, what's the kind of split that uh, that impact that you've had? You know, how much of that has been through interacting with students themselves directly and how much has it been behind the scenes? Um, well, I uh, it, I would almost say it's 50-50. Uh, oh, wow. okay. um, I am very fortunate. Yeah, I'm very fortunate uh, to have now turned around to schools or school districts. So the first, I, when I say turnaround leader, I am a person who has gone into failing schools. Um, school, when I say failing, what I mean is uh, poor academic performance, right, right. Um, poor behavior from students, uh, likely teachers uh, are in, the teaching staff is unstable, lack structure, etc. cetera. Um, that's how I would define a failing school. And so when I did that the first time, I went in, I actually started there as a teacher at that school. The first year we went in for the turnaround and then I became an assistant principal. And then I was the principal of that turnaround for about four years. Um, now I would also say that none of this that I do by myself. <laughs> um, I always had a team of people around me, whether I was working alongside of them or leading them, I couldn't have done any of this by myself. Um, but that work I would say it's 50-50 because you have to build relationships with kids. And particularly because I was a high school principal, there's no skirting around that. Kids, and I don't do fear. Fear is not something that I believe a child should feel towards yeah. me. They should respect me because I am, you know, <laughs> their elder, um, but they should never fear me. And so I think it's about the way that you carry yourself, the way that you show respect to the children. Um, there can't be any judgment. Uh, people have to deal with their own biases because our biases keep us from authentically interacting with children. And that part of it, I would say, was a big part of the work that I did. But even, I would say equally, not even bigger, but behind the scenes was we also had to change adult culture. And that, how can I say this? Uh, structure impacts behavior. Yeah. Systems impact behavior. So when a school or a district lacks structure, when it lacks systems, when it lacks policies, uh, the natural human response is for individual people to do what feels right to them when there's no policy. And so there was a lot of work done around establishing a strong adult culture as well as a strong student culture. See, the, the establishment of the adult cultures, people don't see that as often because when we're in schools, we talk about students because that's, that's what we're here to serve, right? But that establishing a strong adult culture is just as significant, if not more significant. And I did that both, like I said, as a principal, but then I moved on to be an executive director of schools where I turned around a different district and I was managing principals at that point working closely with the board, with the uh, CEO, et cetera. And that was the same kind of mindset. How do we establish a strong adult culture? And some of that also trickles down. Got it. Got it, Nadia. Nadia, you said, you know, your style wasn't uh, working with students 
with you know fear you didn't want them to fear you and that was not the route you wanted to take and you wanted respect right i mean uh, yeah. and you said a cup you know a few things that you listed down as to respecting them the way you carry yourself and then you know letting them deal with their biases in their own way but when it comes down to execution on a day to day basis you know it doesn't happen over a single day it happens over the period of days that you build oh, sure. can you deep dive a little bit into mm-hmm. that you know i think this is something that be really helpful for upcoming teachers or you know who have to face students and you know commanding attention and respect is mm. sometimes not easy for a lot of people yeah that's a great so do you want me to speak to that from the daily aspect of it from a student or when dealing with it for students no, so i meant uh, when dealing with students yeah, when oh. you deal with them as a teacher or as a you know stakeholder in the school when you deal with the students yes so uh being consistently present is it goes a long way when young people see this person is showing up for me every day and every day they have the same expectation for me what i have when i've coached i've coached plenty of teachers and i've coached plenty of leaders and one of the most um underappreciated aspects of teaching and leadership is consistency. Right. If I am working with young people and they know that when I see uh Miss Bennett, she's going to ask me how my day is going. Uh you know, if I have other siblings in the school or if I have siblings coming up, she's going to ask me how my siblings are doing, how my parents are doing. If she knows that I like music, right. she might ask, "What are you working on recently?" right? right? And uh, in that same in that same tone, if I am supposed to be somewhere and I am not in that place, I also know Ms. Bennett is going to tell me you need to get to class on time, right? Um, if I'm doing something that's not appropriate, I know that I'm also going to be corrected. And so when you can consistently pour positivity into young people, consistently build them up, when you do have to correct them, those corrections are very small and they, they barely notice it because you've built up enough relational uh, currency, relationship currency for them to understand this person cares about me. And so I'm just going to do what I have to do. So the biggest thing I always tell, have clear expectations for young right. people and have the, and, and, and put those expectations before them consistently. And then you have to follow through with those expectations consistently. consistently. Is that difficult? Absolutely. It's very hard because we're human and sometimes we don't feel yeah. like it. And, you know, sometimes the, the students can, the, the, the classroom can feel overwhelming. And then you have expectations from your supervisor, but the children need something different from you. All of that is true in this human nature. But if you could just be consistent, have clarity and consistency, right. it's going to go a long way. And one thing that I love about uh, schools is that Often children, often young people, excuse me, have siblings coming up behind them. And when you can be a teacher or a leader who has established yourself in that school community, their siblings will come in a year or two later and they already know who you are. It's a beautiful thing. They'll say, okay, yeah, I know, I know Miss Bennett. I know Miss Bennett don't play. I know Miss Bennett is this and that. And so you, you don't, you can't even fathom how far it'll go, how far your consistency can go if you just do it, you know, if you can maintain it. So, yeah. 
you know uh, the thing that you spoke about relationship currency wow that was like a uh, mind blowing thing because <laughs> um it was it was great thank you thank you for sharing that um you know sure. when i was uh, reading about uh, your write up on your website i came across a couple of uh, short forms you know like uh, ela and dei these were the important metrics so to say and ela is english language and arts am i correct nadia Yeah yes that's and, correct. And uh, it was it was mentioned as a highlight that you know the ELA scores went up in the school that you you know turned around. Um mm-hmm. my question is why was why specifically ELA why wasn't it uh, better previously and why did it improve and why is that particular thing measured as a very important thing why not other subjects? Yeah, that's a great question. So that's uh, a federal, that's a national expectation here. Um, the students across the nation are tested yearly on ELA and math. English language arts and math are the two uh, most important, and then right after that is science. Right. Um, and so oftentimes schools are, ELA and math are prioritized, considered like priority subjects. Right. Um, e- even though, I, you know, well, let's just leave it there. <laughs> they consider priority subjects. And so as a teacher and as a school leader, those are the subject areas that you find yourself kind of pouring into the most. And I was able to double ELA scores, again, with a team of people, not only in the, the, uh, the first district that I turned around. I did that as an assistant principal as well as a principal. Um, and then I went to another district where I was the executive director and I doubled the LA scores as well. With the, I'll speak to the second district where I did that um, first. Well, I'll speak to that one. I'll give that one an example. So what had happened in that particular uh, place is that started off fairly strong, the schools, it's a, a, a multiple schools, and then they had some rough years. Um, that could be contributed to teacher, like uh, poor teacher retention. It could be contributed to poor leadership. It could be some multitude of things. I wasn't there. I'm always I'm only speaking to what I was told prior to that. But either way, ELA and math scores had really tanked. It, it, it was not good. And that district happened to be in the state of New Jersey. And New Jersey does not have a lot of... Uh, they don't give a lot of grace to to charter organizations and so it was basically like if this you know school if these schools don't get it together we're going to come in and we're going to shut it down or put on probation etc whichever the next step would have right. been and so i actually i was in pennsylvania and i actually was they did a, a national search um and they recruited me and brought me um well, they recruit, I, i made the choice too to come here to new jersey to support with that and uh, the way that we were able to and i said double on my website but in some for some grades it actually tripled some some you know every subject area from 3 to 9 increased some tripled some doubled and the way we were able to do that is it goes back to kind of what i was saying earlier i went into <laughs> this district and you know my first year as a leader there i non renewed 22 people yes wow 22 people because they had been underperforming for many years 
um, they were accustomed to an adult culture that wasn't conducive with strong student achievement. And there was an unwillingness to shift their mindset and their skill set. I always 100% give people an opportunity to improve with coaching. That's why I'm so big on teacher coaching and leader coaching. Everybody will have an opportunity to improve. I don't believe in just going into a place and, you know, cleaning house. That's not what I believe. But if I have given you a school year to receive coaching, some people will coach more than one time to receive the support, et cetera, and we've seen no improvement. Well, at that time, I'm not going to put the children's education. I'm not going to prioritize you having a job over the children receiving the good education. I just cannot do that. And so, again, that that adult culture piece, I also had to work with the team to implement a lot of leadership development and teacher coaching. So in that particular district, when I arrived, they did not have a formal teacher coaching program. So when I say formal teacher coaching, what I mean is there is a clear structure of exactly who gets coached every year, how many people, what they're being coached on, who their coach is, et cetera. It's an eight to 12 week period of coaching. They have clear goals to meet those coaching. The leaders are in the classrooms twice a week. And then they're also debriefing with them. They're practicing with them. They're teaching them strategies, et cetera. And they did not have that when I arrived. So I actually brought a formal teacher coaching program to that district. And then I was the leader there that um, managed it. And so I ended up training all the leaders in the organization, not just the ones at my campuses, but all the leaders in the organization on how to formally teach, uh, coach, excuse me, teachers. That in addition to uh, very in-depth data analysis. So we did interim assessments um, where we were able to see how many young people were on pace to meet the standard. And if they were not on pace, what can we do to support them to get them there? Uh, We looked at that data I would say every six to eight weeks, we looked at that data to see kind of where we were, how we were making improvements. And if we need to move young people around to get them more support or less support, et cetera. We did after school tutoring. We did tons of things. And that stuff costs money, too. I want to make sure that that's clear. Like I have to I had to find money in the budget. At that time, it wasn't too hard because the uh, pandemic had come and there was money being given to schools for this particular thing. So, you know, putting a lot of money towards uh, tutoring and making sure that young people have what they need. And then, then we get to the student culture of the aspects of these are the expectations when we're teaching. This is what we know that you can do. And this is the expectation I'm going to have and I'm going to hold for you. Right. I say this to many schools because I'm supporting schools nationally now. People rise to the occasion. They they rise to the expectation when you have a high expectation for them. Unfortunately, because we live in a world um, and in a country that has a history of racism for black and brown children, the expectation for them is often not very high. And that people underestimate how much that impacts a young person of colors, uh, young persons of color's ability to achieve high. If, how can I say this? If I walk into a classroom 
and my white peer, I could be any grade, my white peer, there is an automatic mental expectation that the white student is going to do well. That teacher is going to subconsciously hold that young person to a high standard and expect them to perform well in their classroom, so much so that if they do not do well, it will be a, a surprise. They'll be shocked. A brown person can walk into a classroom and that same subconscious belief exists, but it's the opposite. I expect that you're not going to do well. Right. right? And so that expectation plays out in my interactions with you. And the yeah. same thing happens so that <clears throat> if a brown child does well, teachers are shocked. <laughs> I'm never shocked when black and brown children right. do well because I'm black and I know how superb I can be academically, right? But so I'm never, and, and because I've worked on my biases and I, and I know and I understand biases and implicit biases and subconscious, et cetera, those are the kinds of things that have to be addressed because if you expected the same thing from children, most times, if there are no outside factors such as a learning disability, et cetera, taking those things out of this particular scenario, they will rise to the occasion. Right. Daria, uh, just going a little back, you know, you spoke about when you joined the school, you had uh, you did 22 non-renewals, right? And um, yeah. that is, I, I understand that as soon as you take charge. Now, there is a certain thing, you know, uh, when you're replacing a leadership role, when you're replacing someone in a leadership role, uh, the, the person who was in charge of the overall stuff would have probably been the main reason for whatever was unfolding there. So uh, did you not consider you know, probably telling, you know what, whatever happened in the past may have been due to different reasons. Now, this is what I'm expecting from you. Uh, was there no opportunity for that to happen? Oh, yes, absolutely. And I want to make something clear. I did not non-renew 22 people like on day oh, right, one. I'm, I'm speaking, yeah, this is after the first school got year. It, got it, got it. Right. So that that was nine months of working with right. them, coaching them, supporting them, and then they were non-renewed. So I just want to make sure that that's clear. Um, but in regards to, <clears throat> I think what you just spoke to is me taking an opportunity to reset expectations. Right. And to, yes, and that absolutely happened multiple times. Um, and, that, and also giving them an opportunity to get to know me. Right. Because I'm a new I'm a new supervisor and I have different expectations and I'm gonna, you know, and they have that right because change can be difficult and it can be scary for yeah. people. And so um <clears throat> it takes a level of emotional intelligence to understand how to, to empathize with the fact that people are just gonna have some natural fears that are gonna come up when there's a new person that's supervising them. So let me address those fears by showing them a little bit of who I am, having some transparency, um, and also being clear, <clears throat> excuse me, about the things that I expect right. from them so that there's no misunderstanding. And so I did that, but then also I have to train my principals to do that. I have to train the other school leaders to do right. that. So there's absolutely, and all of that goes into the building and resetting of adult culture. Right. Yeah, for sure. Nadia, 
you spoke about adult culture and you also laid out you know the best practices uh, so to say when you kind of you know led by example by doing certain things uh, i'm going to ask you you know what are those negative undesired things just to reinforce more the positives right sometimes so if you can briefly walk walk through walk us through you know what were those negative things that was actually ongoing that you had to change um <laughs> i want to speak carefully here um sure as to avoid speaking negatively about anyone else's leadership because that's never my desire but there can be an adult culture where i would say the number one thing is people teachers not being supported so supporting a teacher looks like being in their class on a regular basis just to get very detailed maybe helping them write lesson plans uh coaching them in the classroom helping them to figure out the best way to deliver content doing their like formal observations or informal observations or just being a shoulder sometimes because teaching is very difficult and people just need a safe space to release right um there was not a lot of that and that's actually one of the number one reasons that teachers leave the profession is because of lack of right. support so when i'm speaking that aspect of adult culture is coming from the leadership team Good. when the leaders are not supporting the teachers you're going to end up with that that result and so <clears throat> when teachers don't feel supported by their leaders when they don't feel like someone is helping them it's less likely that they're going to give their best selves to children right. you will find teachers who are going to do their best no matter no matter they're being supported no matter the leaders show up they're just going to be amazing no matter what unfortunately that's a small number of right. people that's not the majority right. most people need that adult support they need to know that their teeth that their leaders value them they need to know that their leaders will support them to become better etc and then also when you have a a a space of no accountability so <clears throat> a good leader always wants to balance support and accountability right i just spoke to all the support things but at the same time i'm your supervisor and i need to hold you accountable so when there's no accountability people will walk teachers will walk into the school 10 minutes late <laughs> right as if nothing is wrong as if there are 25 15 year olds sitting in class waiting on you to show up but they do those kinds of things because they're not being held accountable if if you have been coming to work late twice a week for 2 years and nobody ever told you anything at this point you think that it's yeah. okay and so those are some of some of the negative things and then <clears throat> i would even say um people's consistency and delivering the task that they have to deliver right or like again professional development uh lesson plans there there's some teachers i am a believer in lesson plans because it helps you to get your thoughts out you can work out the the end task that the young people are supposed to complete if the teacher works through that metacognitive process before teaching it to the children right. they'll likely be able to support more children when they're in the moment and even like responding to data 
grading papers. There's so many deliverables that come with the, the teaching profession that oftentimes those things are not getting done if there's no clear accountability system. Got it, Nadia. Thank you for uh, you know sharing this. Uh, and you know, you spoke about how expectations are varied when it comes to kids of color and then, you know, uh, the white kids, right? Where do you draw the line mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, keeping it in a way, uh, keeping your expectations in a way that doesn't put pressure on students? I know uh, when you when you said it's not about putting pressure, it's clearly, you know, a certain uh, subtle way. But I just want to get it as clear as possible. That's the reason I'm coming back to that. Yeah, no, I think that's a good question. <clears throat> I don't... That's an this. I am of the opinion, this is not research-based, this is just my right, opinion. Right. I am of the opinion that pressure to perform academically comes from parents and society more than it comes from teachers. There is something that we call here called the academic pressure cooker where there are young people that are expected to get into certain colleges. They're expected to play sports at a very high level. And so academically, they have to be pretty much perfect. That expectation, uh, that pressure, I think, I believe comes from families more than it comes from teachers. Now, to separate the difference between pressure and expectations, Teachers should have high expectations. Leaders should have high expectations, but it should not be pressure. Here's my expectation. I'm going to make it clear to you. I'm going to consistently message it to you. I'm going to support you to meet it if you need that. Right, right. If after all of that, you still don't meet it, then there's a level of accountability that comes in, and that's going to show up in your grades. So, yeah. Got it. I think it involves, it kind of also translates slightly, you know, uh, being uh, encouragement uh, rather than pressure. When you're you're expecting positively out of somebody, it turns out into positive encouragement as well. And yeah, I see, you know, why that can be a good thing now. And um, coming back to another score that you turned around, which is DEI, uh, when I saw it, it it had to do with diversity, Equity and inclusion. Right. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. How did you turn that around? Yeah, so it, it actually it's tied into what we were just mentioning around uh, the expectation piece. So I have always worked in districts where the majority of young people were people of color, whether they identify as Black, uh, Latinx, whichever like, they were majority of Latin of color. I mean, Nadia, of color. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt you. I'm so sorry. Uh, before you get into that, no, uh, you know, let us get one thing clear about diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? So it's, uh, it's, it is mm-hmm. automatically, because the moment you said uh, the districts that you worked in were majority, you know, majorly there were people of color, because the moment diversity comes mm-hmm. into play, people assume that, oh, okay, you know, there are only white kids present because the majority is kind of white. And then you are doing the diversity by bringing on more, uh, colored people, right? So I don't think that was the case in yours. It was different. Yeah, so diversity, that is correct. When I said the majority of districts that I said were people of color, I was talking about the student population. Right, right. So that, yeah, the majority of the students were people of color. Right. 
that does not mean that the majority of the teaching staff or the leadership staff were people of right, color, right, right? Right, right? And so that's where the diversity aspect should come in and that students um, benefit from having representation before right, them every single right. day. And so I've gone into districts where, and, I, and now with my consulting company, I support districts where they're 50 to 60% of the young people are people of color, but the teaching staff is 100% white. Got it. There are, um, that picture perpetuates an age-old lie that white people are more intelligent than people of color. If I, if I, which it's a, it's just an age old lie, right? And so if I am a young person of color and all of my teachers are white throughout my career, what that says to me is that the smart people are the white people. When in reality, what's happening is that there are not systems, there are not enough systems set up for young people to have a more diverse group of teachers or leaders in front of them. And so a part of what I believe this generation is called to is bringing that diversity into the school so that students can see in a, a rainbow, like it should be, everybody should be represented. And so that's where the diversity aspect of it would, would come in, in regards to, to that work. So the way that I've worked on diversity, equity, and inclusion is that I also have, I've always been, <laughs> of someone that's very passionate about race because I understood from a very young age that something at eight years old, I would have described it as something's just not right. right. Things seemed very imbalanced right. to me there. Why, why is this happening? Why is it that when I turn on the TV, I only see people that look like me doing certain things that are often negative. Yet I see white people doing things that are often positive. Why do they only always show me certain pictures of Africa when I have been to Africa at this point in my life? And it looks nothing like what I saw on TV the, my entire life growing up. Why is that that so many uh, black people are in jail? Why? Like, if there's something, it can't just be that everybody that looks like me is making this choice. And, and I understood that from a very young age. So I, I as I grew and, 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 you know, got into my passion, I understood systemic racism much more. I understood the, the barriers that are intentionally set up to maintain this hierarchy, um, this false hierarchy, this false white superiority and false black inferiority. And so that's always been a part of my work. Anybody will tell you, anybody that has worked with me, um, whether they were my supervisor or I was their supervisor or a peer, you're not going to go too long working in the school with Nadia Bennett and not talk about race because our children deserve that. Our children deserve an advocate for them at the table, making decisions and saying it's a problem that the decision makers in this district, none of them look like our children. Right. Right. And I've always been very passionate about saying that. I've always been passionate about bringing that to the light in the schools where I've served. And so it's just always been a part of my work. And so 
I did that in both districts, whether I was the person providing the professional development around diversity, anti-racism is really the work that I do now. Or whether I, you know, I just always, which is always a part of my work, everything from reading books together to bringing in guests to do the, the professional development. It was, it's, it's a part of the work. I don't know how you could be an educator uh, today and not be having those conversations. Got it, Nadia. Nadia, so far, you know, whatever you've described is in total alignment with what you set out to do when you've worked, uh, you know, behind systems that was impacting larger groups, right? That was responsible for, uh, you know, bigger groups, the way they turned out and outcomes. Um, so what was, what exactly happened when you decided to transition from, you know, working in these places to going on your own, you know? Of course, it's the same thing, but then, you know, you turned out to be an entrepreneur. Because yeah. the reason I'm asking this is, at least, you know, you have a fixed system that you can do things that will, you know, ensure changes. Mm -hmm. Now, when you come out of that system, right, you're on your own. And uh, I, for one, think it's going to become even more difficult for you, right? Uh, being an entrepreneur on the outside and trying to change things within the system. So so what yeah. happened? Why transition? And how are you dealing with the other stuff that comes with it? That's a great question. Um, I wouldn't say that it's more difficult. I would say that it's a it's different stress. Right, right. Right. So the things that led me to becoming a full-time entrepreneur is prior to this, I had been turning around schools for 10 years straight. Um, so again, just bring this back to our discussion earlier. This is going into the schools and the districts that most leaders don't want to go into. People want to walk into a school that's established, that's pristine, that has a good reputation. And sometimes for some of those people, their jobs are kind of easy for some of them. I'm definitely not saying right, it's right. all. I went into the most difficult places and I had also, I, uh, I started a doctoral program. I'm working on my doctorate degree right now. And I was just in the, in the last two and a half years, I was leading schools through the pandemic, which the world was had a heightened awareness of how difficult it is to be a teacher, um, which I thought was kind of, that was a good aspect of it. And everyone was worried about the teachers, which I think is good. I was worried about right. the teachers. There was very little conversation though about how the pandemic was impacting the leaders. Having to be, again, at that time I was an executive director. I was the decision maker about when to close schools. Wow. Okay. I, so my job became not only supporting the school leaders, the students, but also watching COVID numbers every day, trying to decide when should when we should open the doors, when we should not. You have parents that are terrified to send their children to school, so I'm still managing attendance, and, and I still have the expectation of meeting certain academic standards, you know. I was tired. <laughs> I was tired. That's how it started. I was tired. And I said, you know, I said, I'm just not going to work for a, a little while. And I'm going to like just allow myself to renew, rejuvenate, and then I'll come back into the work. And then when I got out of the work, two things began to happen. Um, number one, I realized the extent to which I never felt psychologically safe. Mm -hmm. 
as a double marginalized person in education. So when I say double marginalized, like women experience sexism in the workplace and leadership. That is fact. Uh, People of color experience racism. That is fact. I experience both, (laughs) right? Year after year after year after year. Some of it unintentional and just people just not being aware. Some of it was very intentional because some people would prefer not have a black woman lead them. And so that created a certain sense of, like I said, lack of psychological safety. And the thing that helped me to do it all those years was my skill set and my intelligence could not be denied. Right. And I don't say that with any kind of arrogance. I say that with confidence because I know that I know what I know. You do reach a point in your career where you you just can't you just can't be denied because of the things that you've done. That's what helped me to navigate the lack of psychological safety. Not every black woman, not every black person, not every woman coming into this work has established that yet. And so you're just constantly fighting. It's like a double battle. It's the typical challenges of work, but then there's this underlying battle that you're also fighting on a daily basis that people don't recognize how much that can weigh on the spirit. And so I wanted to create, well, so that happened before I even get there. So I began to notice that. And then when colleagues of mine um, found out that I was not full-time at any school district, I began to get a ton of like requests. Like, hey, can you, can you come apply for our chief position? Can you apply for this? And I'm like, hey, guys, no, <laughs> I'm fine. I'm not working right now. I just want to focus on my dissertation. You know, I'll, I'll pass. But then there was a, a couple of people where I had really great relationships yeah. with them. And they maybe, let's say they had new leaders that came in. And I said, okay, I understand your need. I'll come in and I'll coach your principals. Just twice a week, I'll coach your principals. And, you know, and I got into it and I loved it. Right. I, when I tell you I loved it, because for the first time in my life, I could do the things that I love most right. in education without carrying the weight of the whole school. There was nothing like, like I said, just being able to go in on a Tuesday, coach a few principals, get into classrooms with them, coach some teachers, et cetera, or do an anti-racism professional development to help teachers and coach them, et cetera. And then when I go home, I go right. home, right? <laughs> and, I don't, and I don't have to worry about all the things that I always had to worry about. And when I saw it almost like entrepreneurship brought the joy back into, into the profession for me, because if I'm being honest, those couple of years of COVID, it stripped some of that joy yeah. away. I, I was not, I was still doing the work, but it was just so, it was so hard. It was so taxing. And going out on my own, I began to feel that, that passion again. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm not leaving this. <laughs> I was like, I got I have to give this to the world. Um, and so I became, I decided to do it full time. And it has been, it's been an incredible experience. Now, going back to what you were asking around, the different stress. So yes, (laughs) you know, having been in school districts for many years, I knew exactly when I was going to get paid. (laughs) I knew exactly how how much I was going to get paid. I knew that I wasn't in it by myself. Right. 
So if something, you know, really difficult happens, I have a team of people to call on. I don't have to problem solve everything on my own. So those are the two bigger, um, those are the the two areas where I would say the stress is different, different and most significant. Right. Um, but at the same time, it's also fun. It's like, it's almost exciting in some ways because I also, I'm intentional about relationship yeah. building and marketing yeah. and people know me and I, I have relationship currency, as I said. And so there's an excitement because you know, one month you can make X amount less than you anticipated. And in two months you can make three or four times more than you anticipated. So it's all about how much you, you put in. It's all about that work that you put in. And so that, and, and you're building something that's your own and establishing something that's your own. For me at this point in my career, I don't think I would have been able to do this 10 years ago, but at this point in my career, that is that outweighs the consistency of always having somebody to problem solve with or always knowing exactly where the next paycheck is coming from. That's great. You know, the stress that you'd have probably had at work before, you know, you uh, became a full-time entrepreneur and the stress that you have now, as you said, this stress is probably working in favor of you because um, mm -hmm. it's in your control to kind of, you know, alleviate that stress by doing the right things. So it's a positive kind yep. of a stress. You know, I would totally want to talk deep dive into marketing because that's one of the important things for entrepreneurs. You know, people are great at what they yeah. do, but selling is a whole different thing. But before I get there, I just want to ask you one thing. You know, when you go into coaching, right? Um, see, there are times when people do not know things. They're ignorant. And there are times when they are deliberately, intentionally doing some things that's not desired, right? Um, mm -hmm. In your coaching sessions, most of the times, what does it fall under and what are those things? Yeah, that's a great question. I call that a skill versus a will issue, right? So this, this individual that I'm working with, do they lack the skills right. to get this done or do they lack the will to get it done? What are some of the things I would say for leaders, I would say time management. Time management is actually really difficult for leaders. I think that people don't realize that because when you are a teacher, people tell you exactly what time to arrive, exactly which classes you teach, what time the classes begin, what time the classes end, and you know what time you get to go home. There's a clear, clear structure. When you go into leadership, that doesn't exist anymore. You have to create your own schedule. And the most important thing for someone transitioning from teaching to leadership is your instructional knowledge. How well, how good of a teacher were you? And can you teach other people to be good right. teachers? If you have that and you have good leadership values, you can probably become a leader in a school. What they don't realize is that that content knowledge, that instructional strength, that doesn't translate to whether or not you can manage your time well <laughs> all the right. time, right? And so when I say um, time management, so I will work with, I will sit shoulder to shoulder with the leader um, and support them with their calendar to make sure that they have observations, that they're getting into classrooms, that they're planning for professional development. I will help them with that. And I will even give them some time to... 
how can I say, internalize that skill. But if I've shown you and I've given you templates and we've talked about it multiple times and you're still inconsistent in implementing it, then it's no longer a skill issue. It's a will issue. And that will issue then becomes a conversation of, well, do you want to be here? And that might seem like a harsh question, but people would be surprised at how many people I help to realize that they want to do something different, either whether it's in that school or outside of education altogether. And they somehow got stuck where they are because people will actually begin to ask themselves, you know what, why, why do I keep forgetting to do this? Like why? And they realize, you know what, my skill set is actually better suited over here doing this. And I've only been doing this other thing because my boss asked me to, but I kind of really hate it. (laughs) Right. You know, so yeah, that that that's one of the biggest areas, like supporting leaders to manage their time well and to get into those classrooms. Because often when they can get into the classrooms, they can do great things, but they just don't manage their time well enough to be able to do it. And even when you talk about the will issue, skill issue, yes, can be fixed. Will issue also, it's not that they realize that, otherwise you wouldn't be needed, right? It's, un, it's unintentional. They themselves mm-hmm. don't know. So that's where you kind of go and help them realize that probably, you know, uh, this, these, these are the changes that they have to do. Correct. Exactly. People don't know what they don't know. Right. And we do benefit from having a coach to help us to see the things that we can't see. Great. And when you, when you were also talking about time management, can we also say it's about, because leaders are, they can have their calendars full if they want to, but it's, it also boils down to prioritizing, right? You know, they have to let go of certain things. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. making those choices, I believe, is also probably, you know, you're using your experience in the past to kind of help them. Okay, you know, these are the things you can probably ignore mm-hmm. and these are the things that you got to focus. Yeah. One of my supervisors years ago, uh, he knows who he is if he ever hears this podcast. Hello to you. He said to me, he said, uh, I was an assistant principal. No, I was a principal. I don't know. I don't remember. I was in leadership in right. some way. And he said to me, um, Someone should always be able to look at your calendar and see what your priorities are. Right. So basically, don't tell me that getting into classrooms is a priority for you. But when I look at your calendar, all I see reflected is lunch duty and, you know, after school sports. Because it's not a it's not if it's not on your calendar, it's not a priority. So that's number one. And I do share that with a lot of leaders. But then I think also leaders have to decide what are the things that they have to get an A on and what are the things they can take a C on? So once a leader can decide, because uh, leaders do have very, very big jobs. They have very big, very complicated jobs. I don't want to overlook that. Being a school leader is very hard. So you have to prioritize. You have to decide, okay, this week, this month, whichever, I have to get an A on data analysis and you know how we're responding to that. I can't not get an A on that this right. month. So what does that mean? That means in order for me to spend more time over here, I have to decide where I'm not going to spend right. time. And those areas where I'm not going to spend time with the things I'm saying ahead of time, I'm going to take a C on this this month or you know this quarter, but I'm going to get an A plus over here where it really matters. 
And that is another thing that I, I help leaders through as well. Great. Nadia, now coming into, you know, the business aspect of your entrepreneurship, right? I mean, uh, getting yourself the kind of revenue through sales and marketing and stuff. Of course, now, whatever has happened in the past unintentionally, you didn't do anything thinking 10 years down the line, you know what, I'm going to become an entrepreneur and therefore I need to do these things. That was not the case. So let's leave that. That's not in your control anymore. But given the kind of work you've done, uh, the kind of relationship currency that you have, and, you know, all that mm-hmm. good things, despite all of that, uh, or in spite of all of that, what are still the things that you need to do? There's no compromise. You know, it's a non-negotiable thing for you to do to get more business. I have to stay visible in as many ways as possible. Right. Visibility is going to conferences. It is joining um, groups, professional spaces where uh, other people that have my same skill set, my same degrees, where I can meet more of them. Being visible is social media. It is podcast. It is anything that makes sure that the public knows I offer these services I'm incredibly skilled and talented at what I do and that just keep pushing that information out there. I would, I would venture to say that sales is not, I've heard somebody say this and, <laughs> but I've heard, sales is that I don't sell anything to be honest. Like I, I don't, I have not had to, I have, I have requested one-to-one meetings um, I've had lots of conversations, but I'm not selling anybody on yeah. anything. When someone, if I'm constantly visible or because of relationship currency, someone knows work that I've done in the past. When they need someone, I just need to be the person that they think about. Right, right. And, and you know, there's, yeah, so I, I would say, yeah, just being being visible, I think, is one of the, the key things, which is actually something that I had to shift into because I'm actually an introvert. Okay. And I would actually, yeah, I love to read. And I have, I FOMO has never been a thing for <laughs> I me. Mean, I will happily, like, sit on my couch and read a book. And, you know, but coming into this world, I have had, I've, I've very quickly realized how important yeah. that is. And so I've had to almost become a, a different version or a more evolved version of myself in order to make sure that I'm visible. And I think that taking that approach, it keeps you away from any kind of like manipulation or inauthenticity. So, when I go to a conference, I'm genuinely just going to a conference to learn and to meet right. people. And then I leave. And then hopefully something I said that day catches somebody's eyes, or catches, excuse me, not eyes, but catches their ears. And when they 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 need someone to help them with anti-racism work, they think of that person that they spoke right. to. I really prefer to do it that way because that's what feels most authentic to me. Great. And, you yeah. know, Having worked in the schools and the school districts, 
it was, I mean, visibility and stuff was not a thing for you, right? I mean, you just had to go, the work was mm-hmm. very different. And, you know, you being an introvert, this was not going to be easy. So did you just pick this up on the go? Or did you uh, upskill yourself in a very, you know, structured way? Or did you kind of take somebody's help, external help and stuff like that? Um, for clarity, before the last two years of my life, I actually hated networking. I thought it was terrible. It felt like punishment to me. It's like, why would I ever want to do that? Why would I ever want to talk to people when I don't have to? It's like, why? You know, it felt terrible to me. Um, But what I did is I began to watch and learn from very, very, very smart people. And I realized that that was actually a weakness of mine. Right, right. Because, and this, how can I say, so women are also not taught to speak confidently about themselves and their skill set. Women are often socialized to stay quiet, you know, only speak when necessary, et cetera. And so I do, I do know that some of that played a part in my ability to speak with a higher level of confidence about what I know and what I do just because of how I was socialized as a woman. But I began to listen to and observe uh, very talented and smart colleagues of mine who are actually very naturally people that network and connect people. And they get energy from doing that. Right. And so when I began to realize, wait a minute, this is not only something that is needed for my business. This is actually an opportunity of growth for me because I'm recognizing that there are many more people in this world that I could be helping and supporting, but I'm not living to the highest version of myself because I'm not letting my my work be known. And the kind of person that I am, once something like that, once a realization like that happens to me, I'm like, oh, I'm doing, I'm all about it now. So now I just do it naturally. Yeah, because it's like, I can't, I I refuse to to waste the time that I have here on this, on this, on this earth and on this planet. Like I refuse to waste the time. And so I'm going to go for every, I want to be the highest version of myself in every area of my life. And so once I realized, I was like, okay, so... Have I did it take some people coming alongside me and kind of nudging me a little bit? Yeah, I needed some of that. I needed a little bit of a nudge. But once I got that nudge and I had that revelation, it was it's been up from there, I suppose. And there I would say this too to anyone that's considering it. Um, feel comfortable delegating the areas that yeah. are not in your zone of genius. Like social media was big that way for me. So Prior to having my own company, I was the person that would take a year off of social media and not miss it. I I just didn't. I, I just, it, it wasn't something that I felt like I needed to be on every day. And I think that there are some negative aspects of social media. So I was kind of protecting my mind right. and so on. But coming into this work, I can't not be on social media. Right. But I also knew it's something that I really don't like. So I have a social media manager. Great. Right. And she she is the person that, you know, 
We talk about which pictures, which graphics, et cetera, but she'll write the content, et cetera. So feel very come like know your zone of genius. Have you are you familiar with the with the book The Big Leap? No. So it's a great book. I recommend it to anyone that is in a transition period in their lives and they're trying to go to a higher level or evolve in some way. But basically they've carved out these areas where it's like your zone of genius, your zone of excellence, zone of competence and zone of incompetence. And your zone of my zone of genius is presenting uh, anything with like that, that's where I thrive. I do it naturally. I'm very great at it, et cetera. Right. My zone of incompetence is probably social media, probably falls. <laughs> and so because I know that about myself, I had no problem paying somebody to do this for me because I don't want to do it. It's a waste of my time. So you should also like know yourself well enough to know what you should be doing and what you shouldn't be doing. Great. So two years before you may not have come on to this podcast. If if I mean it didn't exist. Oh, I would not I definitely would have come on this podcast. You would have never gotten a response from me. <laughs> I'm telling you, I just I because I wouldn't have been on social media. I would have never seen it. Like I just I'm still that way. So yeah. Got it. Yeah. Got it, Nadia. Nadia, just uh one topic I just thought I'll probably revisit just to, you know, uh clear up things for me about you, right? Uh, you 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 spoke about once you became a full-time entrepreneur, you know, you got called to coach principles and stuff, right? Now, I'm uh, I'm mm. of the understanding that the work that you did previously, uh, working with the school districts, it was government-related stuff. Is that correct? Not government-related, but it was... No... So it would, the government wasn't involved. It was more the the, the school leader. Okay. So the way that the school system is set up here, I really just had to work with either the principal, the superintendent, regional director, executive director, whoever the person in charge Got is, it. and then I would be coaching their leaders. Yeah. Okay. The reason I asked was so they yeah. have a budget because it is one thing to work within the system and then you know them allocating budgets, you know, in the form of salaries and stuff like that. Yeah. So they also have budget set aside for external people to come in as well, like consultants? Yeah, so every school's budget, every school has a budget, every district has a budget that encompasses the budget of all those right. schools. The money comes in via the students. So the, the state, obviously, the uh, nationally, there's a certain amount of money that's allocated for each child's education that just comes with getting a public education in America. Depending upon where you're located, that the money could be higher, lower, et cetera. Uh, there are a lot of things that go into that equation of deciding who, which how much a child gets for their education. That money becomes the school's budget. Right. And so really my work was just with whomever a financial decision maker was. So principals can make decisions on how to spend money in the budget superintendents, executive directors, et cetera, anybody in that level and above, they decide how the money is spent. And what my services, it comes from the professional development line. Their schools do have a line where they put a certain amount of money towards professional development for themselves, from their teachers every year. Um, as P and people will, there is some flexibility on how to move money around. So, that's not an uncommon thing that schools will have, you know, X amount of right. funds, you know, 
delegated for, I'm not delegated, but put to the side for professional development. Got it. Thank you. Thank you so much for clarifying that. Nadia, when you were working, uh, you know, uh, as a supervisor and in the, you know, in the leadership capacity, there would have been roles that things or tasks that you would have loved and then, you know, things that you wouldn't have really enjoyed, but, you know, you had to do because it was part of your job. And you said one of the perks of being a full-time mm-hmm. entrepreneur is just getting to choose to do the ones that you loved. And now uh, the things that you loved, uh, you know, has it expanded a little bit as your scope of work uh, expanded? Are you finding new avenues to kind of get into? And uh, how are you looking uh, into the future with respect to your work? Um, no, I love the same things I've always loved. I just get to do them more often. So I've always loved coaching teachers and yeah. leaders. I've always loved anti-racism work. And those have been two very big things for me since I was a teacher, I mean, since I was an assistant principal. And the behind the scenes things that I love is data analysis, budget analysis. I, I, I've always loved those things. So even like, in, you know, my last district, I had a $19 million budget. I loved getting into that $19 million budget. Like I wanted to go line by line. Uh, I met with our business office every month. I'm going line by line. I want to know exactly where funds are going. I'm, you know, moving money around, et cetera. And before that, as a principal, I think I had an $8 million budget. Same thing. So I've, I've always loved that analysis and budget management, et cetera. And so now I just get to do it, you know, by myself and for my company. So I still love, which I think that's a beautiful thing because it, it validates that we come into this world with certain things that just uh, that we're drawn to and that give us life and fulfill us and you know can just be so inspiring and those things those things have not changed for me it's the same stuff and the stuff that I didn't like I still don't like (laughs) it's just that now I get to delegate them out and uh and I don't have to do it all great and probably, you know, my concluding question would be, you're doing something that you love, you know, you know for a fact that you're amazing at, and, you know, you have data to back up that, you know, you've done a great job. Uh, now, you know, do you wonder, you know, how can I kind of scale this up? How can I reach out, you know, just go big and not, you know, you know is that yeah. there? And, you know, what are your plans to get there, you know, and touch a larger amount of people yeah. in a short time? Yes, I do. Uh, I do have a plan for scaling the company over the next two to five right. years. And so scaling the company is really going to be um, a way for me to slowly take myself out of the work. And so I'm establishing uh, the right framework, uh, the right policies, the right procedures, the right uh, content for the company what I deliver to schools. And then once I establish that content, then it's a matter of, well, now that we have a an established structure and a framework of this is exactly what we offer, now the efficiency increases greatly. Right. And I can offer it to as many people as I have the capacity to offer it to. And then from there, it's just hiring more people, training, training people yeah. Yeah. to training people to do the work to, well, first of all, observe me, I model the work and then they go on and they do the work. And so that's, that grows the business, scales the business. And then I can slowly back my way out of it. Awesome. 
Nadia, it's been an amazing conversation. Uh, so much of learning and so much of value is what uh, I think I've kind of been exposed to in the last hour, hour and a half. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm really grateful for your time here. You're welcome. Um, and uh, yeah, I hope I'll see you another time uh, when you probably expand yes. a little bit more. <laughs> thank you very much. This was a great conversation. I thank you for reaching out to me and uh, it was good. It's my pleasure. This podcast is brought to you by Edison OS, a no-code edtech platform to operate an online education business. Knowledge entrepreneurs can use Edison OS to sell online courses from their own websites, manage online masterclasses, launch mobile learning apps, sell online practice tests for competitive exams, run online learning communities, digitizing their offline tutoring business, use it as a learning management system, and a lot more cases in the domain of knowledge commerce.